Welcome to the Governance Podcast at the Center for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Irina Schneider, and I'm your host. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Bart Wilson, who is the Donald P. Kennedy Endowed Chair in Economics and Law at Chapman University in Southern California. He has co-authored a forthcoming Cambridge University Press book with Nobel laureate Vernon Smith called Humanomics, Moral Sentiments and the Wealth of Nations for the 21st Century. More recently, he has used experimental economics to explore the foundations of exchange and the origins of property. Bart, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Your latest book project tackles a concept that is really central to most of social science, property. And you touch on really deep questions about how we as human, as a human species developed property, how it's changed over time, and how property and ownership are actually a really deep part of who we are as human beings. I'd like to begin with actually just getting the terms right. Um, what is property? Does it differ in your account from what we traditionally think of as property? So there are two different camps uh, on campus. Uh, If you visit the humanities departments, you will hear that property is unique to Western Europeans. And so only a subset of humans have property. Whereas if you travel to the other side of campus and you talk to the uh, biologists, they will tell you that property is ubiquitous in the animal kingdom. You'll see it in dolphins with their prey, with baboons and their harems and, their, and the females, uh, with squirrels and their nuts. And so um, in one part of campus, it's ubiquitous in the animal kingdom. Another part, only some humans. <laughs> I'm a social scientist. So I'm going to propose a compromise somewhere in the middle uh, that uh, property is a universal and uniquely human custom, which mm-hmm. will make neither the biologists nor the people in humanities departments happy. How did you come to that conclusion? (laughs) Well, um, it's been a long, I mean, a lot of reading about biology and how biologists think about the problems and also thinking about what are the critiques? Why is it that there's some pretty strong critiques about property in the the Western world? And what do they have in common and what do they not have in common? And, And how is it that I think social scientists tend to have attract from both of those. They'll, they'll, they will say, oh, yes, it's true that the European conquerors, when they came to North America, didn't have had property notions that were different than, than the Native Americans. And at the same time, they'll say, oh, but my dog has property over the bone. <laughs> it's quite clear. And it's like, okay, so we're adopting some of this. How do we synthesize this? And so thinking about it for me as a bio, as reading biology helped me get out of my human-centric way of thinking about mm-hmm. things and think of us, okay, well, how are we like all these other animals and how we treat things in the world and how are we different? But there seemed to be one key difference. Um, when you talk about animals, when they talk about property, it's always over territory, mates, and food, not really about other things. And that is something about humans that we have property in our backpacks. We have property in our computers and our phones, things that are not food, territory, and mates. And the other thing is that in biology, those kind of property-like behaviors don't have to be taught. Wolves don't go around teaching their young how 
to mark their territory and respect the territory and be careful if you go this territory, they instinctually go around doing that. So that seems that that's passed on genetically. The same thing with having food within your grasp. If, if another animal is trying to take it out of you, that makes you less fit. So teaching, having to teach that could be real problematic for the species. So those things seem to be genetic. And what the humanities scholars would be telling you is that no, property is cultural. It's what was trained and came out of the culture of Western Europe. And there seemed to be something to that because how do we teach our children the things? And actually, I'm not a parent, but how do I, how was I taught by my parents and how do I see my friends and their kids? They teach their children about when they can acquire things and not acquire things. And then it's that really key difference. The key way that children are taught is how not to acquire something. <laughs> Whereas everything else is how to acquire something. Um, in, in the animal kingdom. And there are a lot of different practices among non-humans about how to acquire things that get socially taught. Cowbirds get socially taught um, songs that they determine can't be done genetically. So they're socially taught it. And orcas would teach their, their, their progeny how to capture food. But we teach them how not to say something. We say no <laughs> when you grab something right. that is somebody else's. Or um, I just uh, discovered from a friend uh, this great British um, uh, children's cartoon called Bing, uh, where there's a story called Not Yours, mm -hmm. where the rabbit is, learns from his care how not to pick a lollipop out of the store and just take it home and, and lick mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. What's curious is, is that uh, Bing doesn't have to be taught that he, um, finding things, he calls them a mind. Like, I... Flop asked him, so what do you have there? How did you get it? It's mine. I found it. That doesn't have to be taught mm -hmm. out of this. Well, if you're taught is how you can and cannot go about acquiring things to say, this is mine. Mm -hmm. And that's what we teach, mm -hmm. our, teach our children. Mm -hmm. So it has this element of being um, customary. But I think where the, where the humanities people go wrong is to assume that that isn't there isn't some element of that that's universal among all humans mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that i would argue is in tools utensils and ornaments that many anthropologists have found that in every human society you can claim some tools by some people it can be very limited number of people very limited number of things but there are some things that some people can say this is mine and they generally involve tools so that is, I think, the starting point to understand and try to get this difference between mm -hmm. humans and all their non-humans, mm -hmm. that it's something about tools. Mm -hmm. And it's in tools that we see something very interesting in our primate cousins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, be, so tool use, again, is also both genetically and socially transmitted in the animal kingdom. Digger wasps will use pebbles. Ants use leaves to carry water. Uh, badgers will cover, use tree matter and things to cover up holes. Um, so lots of animals use tools. But what's interesting about primates is that they are socially taught how to use tools. Chimpanzees and capuchin monkeys aren't born knowing how to use a hammer and anvil stones to crack open a nut. Mm -hmm. 
they have to learn it. So they're learning it. So that that's the cultural part that I thought was interesting, that now we've we got tools and we've got a, a, a relative that has to teach it socially, that we have maybe the beginnings here in understanding how we deal with, with this thing called property, this right. custom. Right. That's interesting. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the role of tools in, in defining what actually property means, because it seems that, well, from the beginning of time, humans have been using, animals have been using tools. Um, and you talk a little bit about how tools are kind of extensions of ourselves. And when we use something, it's sort of like we put our we put ourselves into the tool. And somehow that tool, ownership over that tool, defines our property in that tool. Can you talk a little bit more about what the meaning of um, property in something, in a tool? So there's something interesting about how why we have to use tools is because our physical body can't do it itself for whatever reason. And so let me take another example from chimpanzees. So chimpanzees will use a big wooden stick to poke a termite hill to get inside and find that chamber where the termites are. And when they find it, they will substitute out a slender reed. So I just met this uh, field primatologist, Cricket Sands, and her, and her co-authors looked at this and noticed that they switch out the tools when they feel the chamber. The interesting part is they can feel the chamber from the other side of that wooden stick. Mm. So somehow they feel that even though what they're really feeling in their body is the handle of, of the um, stick in their in their palm so it's become a part of them now that i think is the beginning and we have the same kind of we can do the same exercise ourselves if we have a cane and we tap around and we feel we feel the leg of the table through the cane like we are in the cane at that moment our mind has reorganized our perceptions so that we feel through the cane so that is the beginning point, and it seems like chimpanzees have that too. Here's the cool part for humans. If I put that cane down, am I still in it? Mm -hmm. I would argue we are. And so at some point, we've got this symbolic way of thinking about the world that we change that very thing such that we are part of it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a great pronoun that gets to that. So... Uh, again, other animals like elephants and chimpanzees, if they look in a mirror, they can recognize themselves. In a sense, there's a concept of I, and it's in this physical body that they're seeing in, in the mirror. And wherever that physical body goes, I go with it. Well, all humans have the ability to say, this thing is mine. And what I propose is that mine is the concept in things. Mm -hmm. So somehow I became a mind when it deals with things not part of my mm -hmm. physical body. It's an extension of me. It's an extension of me. But it's not the same thing. And what's interesting is that um, linguists cannot define mind in terms of I and I in terms of mind. Those, those seem to be semantically primitive concepts and distinct, and for my purposes, universal among all humans. So we all can do this and I'll think about it this way. So we don't really think about owning property. I mean, people often say, I, I own this property. Um, they don't think of themselves as being in the property, right? right? Um, so how, 
is this kind of just a semantic difference? These prepositions, oh, I have property over something or of something, or I own a property, or I have property in something. Um, are we just talking about this kind of, you know, moderate differences in the way we use language, or do these things have conceptual differences in the way we think about the term and what it, what it actually means? So, so property is a complex concept, and it's only relatively recently where we have called the thing, excuse me, the thing itself property. Generally, property was this abstract concept out there, and um, things were things, not the thing itself. And at some point in our language, we've just cut off the shortcut and called the thing itself property. So we need to break down what property means or what it means to own some things. And that's where I think this concept of mind gets very useful. Um, I think one of the elements of owning or calling something proper, property is to say, I can say this thing is mine. But it doesn't just me saying it. There's got to be another component that other people mm. in the world can know that what I say is true. Right. In other words, they understand it. And now you see where the customers coming in there, that this is how we go about our daily lives, how we expect that if I make a spear, mm -hmm. this is mine, I, and that I'm still in it when I lay it down and I take a nap. Right. And I think there's one other key component of that, and that is that other people cannot say, this is mine. Mm -hmm. Something about mine is singular, uh, mm -hmm. that it belongs, it, it's only one person that has this kind of sense of mine. Otherwise, mine doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it's... Um, uh, I've come to respect the power of language in a way that, for me, saying just as semantics is is um, is actually a window <laughs> mm -hmm. to how we think about the problem, mm, and that those words that we choose are reflecting how we organize the mind is organizing the world, mm -hmm. and and so that's where I think also looking at language, I've found evidence, you know, of how this containment process of being in, in the thing is evident. It comes up kind of over and over in different places over time uh, and it seems to confirm it. But ultimately, there's an empirical test of this. Uh, you can look at cases in, in property disputes and say, well, is, do you see, the, does this inness mm -hmm. seem to explain our intuitions? Uh, and that's kind of where I've headed. Oh, fantastic. Um, you actually have added this interesting um, angle of experimental economics to test our theories of how we actually cognize this concept. What do we think is property? Um, are we actually in the property? Um, and you, you say that it is a social construct in a way, right? All the other people in society have to also recognize kind of my inness mm -hmm. in, in an in a object, yes. right? So tell us a little bit more about how you actually tested this. Well, so... Um, I started by looking at many, several cases in Anglo-American law about lost and found things. And because now there's a brand, there's a thing out there. When it's a created object, we tend to have this intuition that somebody must be able to call this thing mine. But if they're not around, we want to give it to somebody else to use and call it mine. But how do we do that? So the, all these different cases have these kind of circumstances, I would argue this idea of inness 
kind of explains our basic intuitions among around them. So, um, so can I? I'll just give a couple. I'll give a strong case, and then also some weaker ones. But the strong case is what I built my experiment around. Mm -hmm. If it's going to work, it's got to work here. If it fails at that point, well, then I need to revisit things. Yeah. So, uh, so if you start the case, it's pretty strong. I think uh, you know, our intuitions go with how um, with my theory. So it's a case from I believe it's 1877. Uh, Durfee v. Jones. Uh, Durfee owns a safe. He bails it to Jones to sell for him and says, you can use the safe while you're trying to sell it for me. Jones didn't, Durfee offered to sell it to him, but Jones said no. So it's very clear that Durfee owns it and Jones is the bailer, or bailey. And while Jones is using the safe, he goes inside the safe, inside the wall, there's some money that is not from put there by Durfee. So it was prior to Durfee. So that owner we can't find anymore. So now, who has property in that money? Durfee, who owns the safe, or Jones, who has it in his possession and found it, the money? Mm -hmm. And if you, and a couple of psychologists, uh, um, uh, Peter DeSholey and Rachel Karpoff, I believe, um, asked people, just kind of, did a mechanical Turk test for 20 cents. Okay, who do you think gets this? Here are the details of the case. And 80% of the people said it was the owner of the safe, Durfee. Not the one who found it and not the one who had it as, had money in their possession at the time. Hmm. The safe in their possession. Mm -hmm. So, but the judge rules for the finder and the one who had the possession because that seems to be the prior press. Mm -hmm. But our intuitions go this other way. So this seems, all right, my intuitions are this has got in this in a, in a double sense, inside the safe, inside mm -hmm. the wall. It's like the money is a part of mm -hmm. the safe right. itself. Right. That's why we say, oh, terrific. Well, let's put that to the test with some real money on the line, mm -hmm. uh, much bigger stakes. But also for people deciding it, that they're making the, the case like a judge does for actual real people. So I created a my first three-dimensional uh, first-person experiment. So it's kind of like those shooter games. You're in the world. That's, if I'm saying in this, it's important. I want that to be part of the experience. Mm -hmm. And there's a red person and a blue person. And the red person picks up a box and is given a task to, get, to sort tokens inside of it. So think of it as their box, their task. They give it to blue to wash for them and then to sell. And then Blue gets to keep some of that money for them, themselves, for having done that for them. And it's described to them as Red owns the box. They're passing this along. And they do this uh, several rounds, five rounds. And at the end of those five rounds, they both have the same amount of money from doing the tasks of sorting and the other one selling the box. They have the same amount of money, so they're in equal positions in that sense. Then, on the last sixth round, Proceeds exactly the same, but all of a sudden when the, the blue person is selling the box, sets the box down and a, another token falls out. One they haven't seen before, this one is worth $25. All the other tokens are worth $0.50. Cents. This one is $25. And the robot in the world asks blue, there's a purple token in red's box. Is it yours or is it red's? And blue has to answer, pick one of them. 
Whatever they choose, the robot then goes over and asks the red person, there was a purple token in your box. Is it yours or is it blues? And so now we get the sense how, unlike a case, we get a chance to see how many times there's actual conflict. Uh, cases are special. Whatever they got to, they got, they, a, they got into conflict. So the other part of this experiment is that there are three other people who are watching the entire 3D world the entire time who are then asked, they're called observers, and they said, all right, Blue said there was a purple token in Red's box. Blue says it is theirs or not. Red says it is theirs or not. They've seen those two decisions, those two uh, claims. Your job, as the three of you, is to decide who actually gets the purple token. And like a judge, I incentivize them to think, what, what is the rule that is out there that I should be implementing by saying that if you are in the majority position, so if one other person agrees with you or both people agree with you, you get $20. But if you're in the minority, you get nothing. So it can't be just how I want to go. I have to think about how other people are thinking about the problem. Mm -hmm. And so by asking them that, we then award it by those panels. And first of all, we find that only in a third of the cases, there's actually no conflict. Either red wants it and blue doesn't. Or blue says it's not there. Uh, blue says it's theirs, and red says it's not. I think there's one case where neither one claimed it. Mm -hmm. But that's interesting. But it, that there's fair not a conflict. And when there's no conflict, the observers give it to the person who said it was theirs, and the other person who said it was not. Mm -hmm. They say they don't give it. To them. So they don't. And that's equal. They're equal number. Reds wanting it, blues mm -hmm. didn't. Equal, uh, blues wanting it, and reds didn't. And so they always give it to that. So I, so that seems. That's interesting. So people don't come up with a rule unless they have to come up mm -hmm. with a rule, uh, which seems useful to sure. society. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then there's two-thirds where there is conflict. And 77% of the panels, three-person panels, award it to Red, the person who owns the box. So this seems to confirm what there was for the, the psychologists were asking people. Here are some real stakes. I've had a larger pot, so there's 200 people going through this experiment between observers and red and blue agents. So it seems, all right, I got it. Now I got to see, can, I need to ask the counterfactual question. What if now it's not red's box, but it's blue's box? Mm -hmm. So I, the entire experiment is exactly the same, except they tell them it's blue's box. But actions are all around the thing. What is my idea? What is my prediction? My prediction is that they're going to give it to blue now. It's going to switch to red. What happens? Well, there are only 50% of the cases are there actually conflict. So that seems to go, conflict goes down. And the same pattern, they don't uh, change what the, the uh, I can't call them litigants, because they're not, the two agents are mm -hmm. claiming. Mm -hmm. But 50% of the cases, they still have a, have a conflict. And they still give it to Red 70% of the time. So I'm like, well, I just, now I'm, they're giving it to Red, even if I call it Blue's box. <laughs> so either I'm wrong, that this whole idea is something else is going on in here, but that seems odd because it, when it's called Red box, so either it, it's not mattering who I give it to, I'm like, okay, well, what about the experiment means it's not mattering? Well, the way the experiment is set up is Red goes to the dispenser to get a box. They're the first one to touch 
the box in the world. And they carry it over, do their thing, and pass it off to Blue. I said, well, maybe that it's not mattering what I tell them who, who are the owners. It's mattering what's actually happening in the world because they're observers and they're watching us. So I changed it. One more change. Now Blue owns the box and picks up the box from the dispenser. Yeah. Goes and washes it, and they do the sorting. They go the same process, same amount of money, but now Blue is the first person to pick it up and touch it. What happens? 100% of the conflicts, they award it to Blue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's even stronger than I thought. That it's not me telling them that they own it. It's the physical connection between the Mm -hmm. person and the thing Mm -hmm. that is what is driving their awarding the found token to. So I, I take that as strong evidence. Now I got to break it, and there are much many other cases that are less strong with the inness of the case uh, mm-hmm. that I can pursue. But I think I have a hint, and I have, an, I have a platform, and I can keep testing it and see where I break and where I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. So there's this interesting connection about you having to actually touch something that's yours. This physicality is very critical to property because that's kind of how you transfer yourself into the object, right? So even if, interestingly, so even if the red was picking up blue's box and we know it was blue's box and red gave it to blue, people would still think that red is the rightful owner of that token that was found. It's just because he was the first one with his hands on it. Yes. Um, that's interesting. That's interesting. So it's not even about your claims to ownership as much as what people think, you know, who was the first one to get there to have it, to kind of put their hands on it, right? Well, in that sense, the experiment is because the observers are watching the whole thing, that they have that. They, right. they have that first, that third person view of it. Now, if in a court case, they don't get to do that. They have to be told that. And maybe they start believing right, that right. when – but. I put that at odds here. They could believe me or they can make their own opinion and the mm-hmm. juries make their own opinions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a great thing about the process. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It gives yeah. it to the people for how, how they think about it, not, yeah. not yeah. to the prosecutor or the defense. Yeah, 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 true. Um, so what is um, – how does this sort of impact the way we think about property and the social sciences, right? If it's if we know that this is there's some kind of physicality involved in it, or at least this is the way society perceives property, um, and it's a lot about kind of finders keepers, people being the first to to get to an object. Um, how does that does that change anything about how we study property, about what it means for economic outcomes? Well, it. I think the first part is that it that it's property carries this moral force with it. When I say this is mine, that's not just a factual claim. It means that if you go up, pick it up, and walk off with it, I'm saying something that is morally going on in the world that you ought to return this thing that I have been harmed by that. And it is a it is an interaction between me. And the entire community about deciding when I can and cannot mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. I think the way we tend to think about property economics is it's a constraint imposed on us by the outside world, and it goes one direction. Those are the world that those are the those that's what how property works, and I kind of maximize and go about my life responding to that as a constraint. 
where I think it's a little looser because it's also going the other way. <laughs> that I, when I, every time I make this claim and, and the rest of the community has to decide if it's true or not, we're deciding how the rules work. And so it's, it's a two-way conversation that is, I think, lost in how we think about it in economics. Mm. Uh, that it, it, we, we just take it for granted as a constraint. Or maybe it, it's endogenous to the, to the mm. system. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we can and cannot make these claims. And that, um, yeah, so I think that's the first point. And then how we decide these rules, if we, the part that is, I believe, biological in us is how our brains work in order to do this in this thing. That comes with the biology of our, of our brains and that gets passed on. But there's this other social part, script, that gets put on top of that system and it's the interaction of those two where I think there's a lot of room to understand how that works. I think it gives us plenty of opportunity to work with, say, people in the humanities to understand like how mine, if they're suspect of it, can actually promote the social good. Right. And can it make for better lives that is not about theft, as Brown said. Property is theft. Right. No, that property settles disputes it comes about as a way to keep us from fighting if we if you couldn't say this is mine and this that is yours then we're going to fight for deciding that this is mine right and that's worse for everyone uh and so i'm not i think what this adds is another way for us social scientists to think about property and to begin to talk to people in the humanities and biology about how we think about these problems. Uh, I think it gives us something new to think about. Right, that's very important. Um, I think that, you know, in development economics, we often say, well, in order to promote good uh, economic development, you need to give people property rights, right? Just as if, you know, they kind of fall out of the sky, right? Um, So it's often... we often say, well, yes, every, all economists know this, but then suddenly when you try to impose these kind of institutions in places where they've never existed before, it's like suddenly just everything is chaos and nothing really works. Do you have an example? I'd love to hear that, of an example of where it's been imposed and it didn't work. You know, I'm not really sure of an exact paper at the moment, uh, but I was actually thinking about the fall of communism in 1989, where the wisdom at the time in the West was you should launch a set of prepackaged economic reforms to help countries transition from state ownership of production to private ownership. And of course, it's now common knowledge that that advice was misguided because it missed out on this plethora of cultural and political factors that actually weren't also transitioning. And as a result, you had economic reforms taking place in a legal vacuum, and many state resources were simply pilfered and sold off to the powerful, leaving much of uh, civil society behind. But even going off of this example, I wanted to interrogate this idea of property rights further. Um, we know that there is obviously some folly and hubris in trying to impose rights from above or from the quote-unquote West. But at the same time, can't we think of rights as sets of rules to govern our claims to property? Um, And if that is the case, can't those rules actually emerge from below? Can't communities themselves assign property rights? Or does the language of rights always have to come from above? Well, so part of of why I got into this project uh, was when I, I started an experiment with my 
co-authors of Vernon Smith and Eric Kimbrough, wow, probably over 12, 13 years ago. And we set up an experiment where people could specialize and trade things, but we just took out the possibility that you can't protect what's in your own field in your own house in the experiment. And it was wild, crazy. Things are flying all over the screen. It, and it was, and these are with Western educated industrial uh, students. Uh, and yet they're, you know, they're rich and, and yet in this virtual world, it's all craziness. And so we were kind of surprised and everything we tried to do to kind of promote it, what we gave them, failed. And so I said, well, I started reading about, okay, let's read some of these people that are known in political theaters, talk about all time property, Locke, Hume. And I noticed they don't use the term property rights. And a simple Google engram of property rights shows you that the word property right and property rights doesn't pick up until the late, 19, late 1800s. 1875 is when it starts to build. And so... It, Property rights is a new word, new concept. And how do we use it and define it? Now, you used it, you know, define it in a way that most people don't, only a couple that I know. You define mm. it as a rule. Mm. But most economists, if you ask them how to define a property right, they'll say it is a right mm. to its use or something like that. But they'll define a property right in terms of the word right. <laughs> Right. Which doesn't really help us. And, and so um, that, so I, I'm not sh- convinced we need that word. Um, we use rights. Again, I think this is a very uh, Western European concept, uh, particularly Anglo, I would argue. Mm-hmm. Uh, this notion, I have a right to speedy trial, mm-hmm. free speech, things like that. Mm-hmm. And it, so it adds additional moral force to this concept of property. Right. But do we need that actual moral force? I'm not, mm. sure, I'm not convinced. Um, and here's, here's, this is probably the most speculative thing that I've been part of. But what's the, what's the preposition that follows right? It's always two. Now it can be a, it can be an infinitive, so it can be a particle as well too. But it's two, which means it's pointing. Mm-hmm. So we say property right to your crops, or property right to use the horse, or whatever. We're saying there's a right out here, and it's pointing over to the thing over here. Mm-hmm. What's out hanging out here? Where is it coming from? Where is it? A, why, how, why is it being pointing to this thing? Whereas if you think about it this in way, property in the way, which is how Locke talks about it, which is how the prior hundred years of elite British jurisprudence talked about it, they have property in the swans. It's just the thing itself inside it. But I'm pointing to a glass, but right. you, can't, you, you can't see that. It's um, and so the inness goes with the thing itself. And property right kind of means it's hanging out there and gives us a sense that we have this freedom to construct it however we wish to desire it to be. And so I'm not convinced that we need that right, If we, in part because we, we want to get rid of the customary way of thinking about it. That 
seems to go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, I think that's part of the reason why people are suspect of it, that they don't think of this as the ordinary way that ordinary people think about preventively settling conflicts. Right, right. And so in rights tends to come think about coming from imposed from above and I want to recapture that appreciation of the marvel hmm. of it being how ordinary people think about these issues mm-hmm. and solve disputes and settle them um, mm. even before they happen. That strikes me as a quite a contentious point, just thinking back to the Declaration of Independence and those lines about you having inalienable rights to property, and that was changed to the pursuit of happiness. But do we actually have to disqualify the concept of rights, not only over property, but perhaps over other things, if we take your approach? I, a next version of this project might be to discover how rights themselves and the way of thinking about this is a custom itself. Mm. Uh, that we, how we think about people and how we treat those people is also itself a custom that has evolved over time. We haven't always treated people the same way. Mm. In fact, even when the Constitution was written, men only meant white property-owning men. Right. <laughs> and now it yeah. means of a broader. And so, uh, the, so I think right is just as customary as I'm arguing property is. Mm. Um but I want us to think about why mm. and where it's coming from. And ultimately, it's coming from us. We are the ones thinking about other people and how to treat other people and other things. And, and that it is, uh, in that sense, I think human is right. It's a, it's a human uh, invention. Mm-hmm. Uh, to think about rights, to think about property. Uh, and I think that should be uh, something the humanists want to hear. That this is mm-hmm. about us as being human, that we do these kind of things, and we have the power to think about the world differently. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you think of it as inalienable, like it's unquestionable. It's that, how can you even not think about that? Whereas I think we need to ask those questions. And that's where we need the humanities hmm. to think about those. Mm-hmm. I think the problem in humanities, they want to go too far. There's anything they don't like, like mine, they're going to call that evil. Right. right. And, and so this is a play. So um, it's contentious. I, my, I, my thoughts aren't all worked out on this. <laughs> uh, I, I'm still writing the book. Yeah, uh, yeah. And um, I'm sticking with property, but I think something ha- I think there's something to be done with rights and where where we go and how we think about them. Mm, um, mm. But it's, I'll say one yeah. last thing. Uh, yeah. Part of it also is I want to get at the part that is kind of common to all human beings. And if the concept of rights is extremely complicated and culturally conveys meaning in a way that it doesn't in other languages, then how do we draft international documents right. to deal with people. we we got to put them in terms that all people can identify with. And if mm. we use these particularly Western Anglo mm. ones, um, we I think we're missing out, missing the universality that we're really aiming for. 
And there are these kind of core concepts that we can universally use across languages and people to talk about those type of issues. Like, it is bad if people do bad things to other people. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you define bad? But the, that's the universal precept that we can yeah. carry with us. Uh, what rights are designed to protect? Uh, it's... But there's an uh, there's a ambiguity going on there, particularly how it applies to all humans. That I right. I'm I'm interested in that to be to universalize how we understand economics, how mm. we understand property, mm. and these issues because we tend to think about it from a very Western, mm. educated, mm. industrialized, mm-hmm. rich democracies. I think that's a really deep point, and perhaps another way of looking at the benefits of this very bottom-up and human-centric way of looking at property is is precisely to recognize that it also changes over time. And I was just thinking of the concept of marriage and that traditionally you would ask for somebody's hand, or we still say these things, but one could have presumed that the father basically hands off the daughter to the husband as a form of property. And obviously, we don't think about marriage in this way anymore, and that's obviously for the best. So it seems like we actually are developing this um, way of getting better over time, that human societies change and evolve, and and um, that's really for our benefit. Well, and I think that raises the question, why are we becoming more ethical in how we treat people over time? I, it's, I think it is important that it, to see that it has evolved and then they ask the question, why is it evolving? Which is a big question. Uh, Deirdre McCloskey is, is tackling that. She's arguing that it's commerce, it's the commercial way of life that is actually making us better ethical people. Um, and I think that that's a big question. How does that work? Um, but I think you're Exactly right. Understanding that it does evolve and does change is huge. And it, it's easy to kind of get lost in our moment right now and not see that, particularly now in a world where things seem to be not very pleasant and good. But yet, think about 50 years ago. Things have evolved a lot since then. Um, the fear is, are we going to are we going to slip back? We never know. But why Why haven't we yet? Perhaps that's another point at which you can connect with your colleagues in the humanities and that actually, well, we did have these egregious notions of property in the past, what with slavery and these outdated notions of marriage. And actually, yeah, you just say, well, you know, we have this proven track record of getting better. And the reasons for that are really fascinating. As an economist, I, would, I, I, will, I will say has something to do about what we're studying. <laughs> I think it has something to do with the commerce and, and in the world and that and for the better, not necessarily assuming for the worst. I also wanted to touch base on your methodology and the role that interdisciplinarity plays in your work. You've obviously consulted a lot of different fields from biology to psychology to economics. And I wonder... Is that sort of bringing together of different fields productive for your work, or does it actually make things more difficult? Well, so I, I am I'm a colleague and a student of, of Vernon Smith, and he always advised to read broadly, 
work narrowly. And so I'm, I'm this project is following that maxim. Uh, to I got interested in linguistics right after I got tenure, started reading about it. Um, and I'm trying to understand the connections between exchanging of ideas and thoughts with exchanging things. And it, 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 well, it's been taking me now, it's 20, 2018, 13 years later, I'm actually putting together <laughs> into a book. Uh, but it, it, I think it makes, it gives us ideas that I wouldn't have normally got just by studying economics or, or keeping within the, the, the narrow literature of economics. And, and it, so reading broadly gives you, gives you new ideas. Um, as Matt really says, ideas can have sex, and that I think is the benefit of it. You have to. There is an element of self-discipline you need in order to kind of keep those ideas manageable, which is the kind of the premise of, of your question. And that 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 there are many. This book does not go through all the other what all the paths I went through that didn't went go anywhere. <laughs> Didn't go anywhere. You only see the ones that went somewhere where I put them together. Um, so yes, it is. It's messy in that sense, um, but I think it keeps you more nimble too. Mm-hmm. Um, it does come at the expense of becoming specialized. Uh, my my reading of Econometrica has gone down. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for the better. <laughs> no, I, I I read. I had a huge history of, of Econometrica issues from grad school, and uh, but it. Um, but it's something. It, it's different, and, and, and for me, that's the fun of it. Mm. Uh, also, trying to learn these different mm. fields. Uh, it's good to find people. So I have. I work with a primatologist, so my work in biology, I get to ask them my questions. Go to some of their small conferences and ask them on the way to dinner. Well, what do you think about baboons and and their harems? <laughs> and just to press those ideas to make sure that I'm not, you know, going off on on a yeah. wrong tangent. Yeah. Uh, but inevitably, I, I'm going to make I'm going to make some mistakes, and I think I'm going to be some prone to that. But you know, yeah, that's part of the process of discovery. Fantastic, um, great way to uh, end the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a great visit. Fantastic. Um, to all of our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation with us today. You'll be able to find more podcasts, live talks, seminars, and blogs on the cutting-edge debates and governance directly on our website, csgs.kcl.ac.uk. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at csgskcl. We look forward to seeing you again soon on the Governance Podcast. <laughs>